Good morning, and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our show know, each and every week, I discuss the weekly parasha, the weekly reading of Torah with a guest. This week, we are reading in Jewish synagogues throughout the world from uh, Exodus 38 through Exodus 40. The parasha is known as Pikudei. It is a relatively short parasha, uh, and that is that it is one of the seven parashiot, one of the seven portions that is uh, doubled when we are not in a leap year. You may remember that during a Jewish leap year, an extra month is added to accommodate the unique nature of the solar lunar year. And this week, and this year is um, a leap year. So we are in what is called Adar Aleph, and we are getting ready to move to Adar Bet, during which we have the festival of Purim. And Pikudei would have usually been combined with last week's parasha, Vayikahel, but due to the calendar, we are separate. So let me give you a brief overview of our brief Uh, Torah portion. In this week's Torah portion, we continue the conversation about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. An accounting is made of the gold, silver, and copper donated by the people for the making of the Mishkan. Bitzalel and Ohalev and their assistants make the eight priestly garments, the apron, the breastplates, the cloak, the crown, hat, tunic, sash, and breeches. According to the specifications communicated to Moshe and Parsha of Titzaveh, the Mishkan is completed and all of its components are brought to Moses, who finally erects it and anoints it with the holy anointing oil and initiates Aaron and his four sons into the priesthood. A cloud appears over the Mishkan signifying the divine presence that has come to dwell within it. My guest this week is Rabbi Menachem Bloom, who is the founder and executive director of the Ottawa Torah Center. It is a pleasure to welcome him to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Um, Rabbi Bloom, you uh, represent in Ottawa, Canada, uh, Chabad, which is um, a different name for the Lubavitch uh, Hasidic movement. Um, And I'm wondering if you could take a few moments to share with our listeners uh, what exactly is Chabad and Lubavitch Hasidism. I recognize you could spend the entire show speaking about it, but since we often have... um, representatives of the three denominations which are better known to listeners, I thought it would be important for them to understand the perspective from which you come. No problem. We'll try to keep it uh, concise. Um, So Lubavitch is actually the name of the town where the movement 
was based uh, in Russia. Um, Chabad is a, a branch of Hasidism um, that dates back about 250 years. Um, the founder is Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi, who authored, who's famously known for authoring the Tanya. Um, the word Chabad is an acronym uh, for three words, Chochma, Bina, and Dat, which means wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And the philosophy of the movement is that if we share the wisdom, the wisdom of Judaism, and uh, educate our fellow human beings so that they are knowledgeable, that they have the understanding, once there is this uh, connection on the intellectual level, uh, it automatically uh, allows people to have a feeling towards it, which hopefully then will lead to behavior uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a big emphasis in the Chabad movement in, in teaching, in sharing the knowledge, in, in education, um, and uh, reaching out to make sure that all have access to learning and to the uh, rich wisdom that the Judaism has to offer. Um, <clears throat> while we are speaking, uh, world events have uh, forced us all to look at uh, the Ukraine. And in many of the reports of the Ukraine, there are, uh, it takes notice of the hundred of shlichim from the Chabad movement there. And so I have heard individuals ask, why is it that Chabad, more than any other Hasidic uh, perspective, um, sends shlichim messengers? We notice that also in the tragedy of Mumbai, maybe uh, close to a decade ago or more, in which the Chabad house was targeted by the terrorists. So if we could conclude this section of our conversation with you explaining to our listeners why um, Lubavitch slash Chabad sees it as their mission to send representatives throughout the world. And, and, and that's, that's very much in line with, uh, with what I was speaking about before, about the importance to, to share, to educate, and to reach out. Um, and in order to do that, you can't lock yourself in into your own ivory tower uh, and your own cocoon. Uh, in order to reach out, we have to be out there. We have to be where the people are. Uh, and therefore, for uh, it was really the doing of the the, the last, you know, Chabad Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of blessed memory, who really uh, expanded on the idea of outreach that was very much the hallmark of the Chabad movement, but uh, took it to the next level to send out uh, shluchim couples to different uh, communities. Uh, to to become part of the community and to teach and to engage, uh, and it's uh, it's it, it has a tremendous impact on, on on the communities and on the world at large. I mean, you mentioned Ukraine. Um, I know that my colleagues for the last week have been so busy, you know, just helping people get out, uh, helping people with food and shelter, and um, as much as 
Chabad is engaged in, in, in spiritual education, if you will. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov said, who's the founder of the Hasidic movement, that it's as important to do a person a favor uh, on a material level, uh, and if not more important, than on a physical level. And therefore, many um, Chabad centers end up getting involved in humanitarian uh, you know, pursuits, and, and especially in times of crisis, uh, Chabad has always uh, risen to the occasion to be there to help people, uh, to provide the basic necessity for their survival. And uh, I do want to clarify that the Chabad uh, shlichim, the Chabad messengers, are not there to convert uh, non-Jews as opposed to other missionary, religious missionary movements. They are there to uh, encourage and educate those who self-identify as Jews regardless of their religious practice. Correct. Correct. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that our listeners are thankful for, for those uh, words of clarification. And in the time that's available, we'll turn to our Torah portion, Piku Dei. Uh, the Torah portion begins in Hebrew in the following manner, Ele Piku Dei HaMishkan. And these are the records of the tabernacle. But we have had um, numerous parshiot. Uh, directed towards the building and the accoutrements of the parasha of the um, of the tabernacle. More Torah is devoted to the Mishkan than perhaps uh, any other topic in the Torah. Um, why is that? Uh, great question, um, and it, it and it is a, a a question that is so glaring because. As you make your way through the book of Genesis and then the beginning of Exodus and you read about the creation of the world and the, the history of our ancestors and uh, the journey down to Egypt and out of Egypt, um, it's, you know, every, every Parsha, really every portion has its topic and its message, but there is no topic that just like the Mishkan that takes up so much space as, you know, five different parshiot. Uh, and, and some of the details seem so trivial, right? Uh, measurement of a building or measurement of the ark and, and this kind of wood and that kind of a curtain, like why is that all important? And, um, and the answer is that the Torah, number one, is not a history book. The Torah, as its name indicates, Torah is a lesson. Torah means a teaching, a lesson. Uh, there is a message. Uh, as, uh, as I very often say, that if we look at the Torah uh, as a history book, it doesn't do a very good job at it. There's a lot of pieces missing. Um, and, you know, talk about the creation of the world. There are only 21 verses that, that are there to 21 or 31 verses that describe the creation of the world, uh, which is quite a big project. Here you're talking about a man-made mishkan. But the truth is um, that this is really what the Torah is about. The Torah is the divine instruction that uh, the Jewish people received at Mount Sinai as they were on the way to the promised land. And 
if we were to encapsulate the instructions in one sentence, it would be create a godly environment, or if, if it would be God speaking. Actually, this is what God says at the beginning of the project of the Mishka. Make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell within them, which is interesting. He doesn't say, I will dwell within it, I will dwell within them. And um, a truth be told, it's not that God needs a, uh, a home. Uh, God is everywhere, and God is not a physical entity that needs a physical home. But it's really uh, our opportunity to create a connection with God. And the way we do that is by taking uh, material things, um, things that seem to be mundane, and when we use these elements and we create a home for God, we use it as part of serving God, uh, it becomes a sanctuary, it becomes a home for God. So are you suggesting um, that the building of the Mishkan was uh, imperative for the Israelites, not for God? Correct. Correct. That it was uh, God's understanding of the human need that there be a makom, uh, a place, a locus in which human beings could direct their questions, concerns, and their faith, uh, because God can't be um, encapsulated within all of these uh, four walls or however the Mishkan defined walls. Uh, so then what is the need? One could accept that, that as you suggested from the parasha, three or four previous parashiot, build me a place that I will dwell among you. But what then is your understanding of the specificity of this building? Um, and I think, of course, of your own wonderful uh, Ottawa Torah Center, which is not or, um, adorned with uh, dolphin skins and uh, cedar from Lebanon, but which is uh, a fairly functional, attractive, but not overly uh, ungapach kind of building. Right. So, so I think the uh, if we if we follow in that same message, um, that the instruction to build a a sanctuary to build a mishkan is really God's instruction. God's instruction to connect with Him to create that space where we could enjoy and, and experience that connection uh, within our world, the specific details are very important. And, and, and that really speaks to the Torah as a whole. Uh, you know, the word mitzvah, which is translated as a commandment, um, although today people translate mitzvah as a good deed, doing something good is also a mitzvah. But uh, literally translated, mitzvah comes from the word tzav, tzivui, which is a command. And uh, in the 613 commandments that God has in the Torah for the Jewish people, um, there, is a command, there are commandments that deal with every facet of life. Um, God has something to say about the type of food we eat, about the way we conduct our business, in the, about the way that we conduct ourselves in our bedroom. 
Um, there is there is a mitzvah virtually with everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, and each mitzvah has specific details that it comes with. And and the reason why there are so many mitzvot is not so many commandments is not that God is trying to make the uh, people's lives uh, miserable, but these are opportunity for connection. These are opportunities to bring God into our lives, into the activities that seem to be so mundane as, as eating and sleeping and uh, working, the things that we don't think is a godly experience. Um, those mitzvot, those, those commandments, allow us to really tap in, tune into the deeper dimension that is going on within the food that we eat, within the people that we interact with, uh, the places that we come to, uh, because everything has a body and soul. And, and, and with time and space and experiences, it's the same. There is the soul, there's the meaning behind everything. And by having to stop and think about God and have uh, a, more of a mindful intent into the activity that we're about to do, uh, in the specific details that God prescribes that allow that connection um, brings brings tremendous meaning. You know, I'm thinking of connection. Uh, imagine when you're typing um, a, a, a web address. If you're missing one dot, you're not connecting to the server. You may think, oh, but I, it's only a dot. It's such a detail. But if the creator of that server has inserted that dot in order for that connection to be established, uh, we look at mitzvot the same way. The mitzvot, there are commandments. You know, in Aramaic, the word mitzvah comes from the word savta, which means attachment, connection. And when we fulfill a commandment, it creates that sense of connection. Um, and the connection could only be established if we have all its details, including the dot before the com, uh, if not, the connection is not established. And so to get back to your question. Yeah. I, 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 you know, uh, as you were speaking, I was reminded that Rabbi Plout, Oliver Shalom, one of the great reform rabbis of Canada, um, used the same kind of uh, imagery to discuss mitzvot, that mitzvot were the connections uh, to God. Now, he went a little bit further and he said uh, to the Jewish people. Um, and that would be an interesting conversation. And um, his um, notion of connectedness was similar, um, but perhaps without the intensity of specificity. Right. Um, so I know that our audience um, is... Uh, of a variety of different denominations and faiths. So I want you, if you could, uh, before we go on, to help our audience understand, uh, an audience that obviously knows of the Aserita de Brot, the 10 phrases which are known in English as the Ten Commandments. But they may be less familiar about how um, traditional Judaism arrives at a number of 613. So perhaps you could help them since they aren't as obvious as the 10. Right. So um, 
I mean, as somebody who reads through um, the Old Testament, the Torah, um, you would see that there are definitely more than just the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, there's uh, commandments of uh, what is kosher, what type of food to be eaten. There are commandments that uh, have to do with agriculture, um, you know, not plowing the field with two different species of animals. Uh, not mixing wool and linen. I mean, the list goes on, as I said, at 613. Um, so, uh, you know, they, the, the figure of 613 is the, 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 the sum total of, of, of all those commandments that really touch on every, uh, on every facet, uh, of life, uh, which is, as I said, you know, with the, with the food, with agriculture. Um, things that have to do with honesty and integrity, and, and so they're and they're all and as you've expounded on it, our listeners should note that the rabbi was indicating that they're not all ritual commandments, they're not all liturgical commandments. So that uh, the question of mixing species um, doesn't manifest itself in the ritual of Shabbat or any daily worship. When um, the Torah speaks of leaving the corners of your fields to be harvested by the poor and the homeless, that is perhaps recited uh, when we read the Torah portion, but it's not part of the daily prayer service. And those might be um, ethical commandments, ben adam la adam, um, between human beings and ben adam la makom, and Commandments between man, humanity, and the divine. Um, thank you for that. And I know I cut you off when you wanted to continue speaking about why the building of the Mishkan was so important. Right. So actually, I wanted to to circle back to your Good. question, which was the 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 details. Why the 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 point of the specific specificity of of how things have to be done. Um, and and so once again, because the Mishkan is the prototype, if you will, of of developing our relationship with God in our environment, in our physical and materialistic environment, uh, which is expressed through the mitzvot, uh, through the commandments. Uh, those details are very important because every detail is another component uh, that is there to connect. Um, you know, if, if my wife wants me to be home at 7 p.m. because she has to run out to a meeting and she wants me to be home to babysit the kids, um, and, and me with all good intention want to connect with my wife and I decide that I'm going to stop to buy her her favorite flowers, which the local florists just doesn't have that kind of flower. And I spend the next hour running around from flower shop to flower shop to get the right flowers and I, I'm so excited and I finally come home at 8 p.m. Um, my wife is not only not going to look at the flowers, she won't look at me. But when you're talking about connection with another, you have to take into account what are the parameters that were set up by the other um, that wants you to connect. And when we look at the Mishkan and by extension, um, our, our, our worship of the divine through the commandments and through 
everything that we do in life, um, the details are important because that is the will of God. Having focused on the building of the Mishkan and the specificity of the Mishkan, we now come to the reality of 2022 when the Mishkan is no longer present. Um, how do you, would you explain to our listeners why the Mishkan um, remains such an important symbol for the Jewish people? Uh, even though now we can discuss whether the Beit HaMikdash in Jerusalem was the uh, continuation of the Mishkan, and even that hasn't existed for uh, over uh, 1,500 years or thereabouts, more, um, 2,000 yes. years. Yep. So um, how do we explain um, in the little bit of time we have left the importance of this symbolism? So, so, so firstly, yes, the, the Mishkan was transplanted, if you will, uh, into the first and second temples in Jerusalem. And uh, God willing, with the coming of Mashiach in the Messianic age, with the third temple. But in the meantime, in the meantime, what that represents and why is it such a focal point is because we are, we have the command basically to make our own home and our own life into the Mishkan, into a sanctuary for God. And what that means, it means to infuse um, meaning and purpose and, and, and divine purpose into everything that we do. And, and you know, I, I was talking about before about eating and, and working and, you know, all the regular mundane activities that we have. So many of these activities, we do them mindlessly without really thinking. You know, it's mechanical. I'm hungry. I open the fridge. I grab something. Uh, you know, I, if I'm tired and I happen to sit on the couch, I fall asleep. Um, working, people getting to work. Um, I don't know what the percentage is, but I don't know how many people are excited to be heading out to work. Um, all that to say that there are so many, most of the things that we do in life we don't stop for a second to think, to contemplate what is the purpose of what I'm about to do. Building a mishkan for God, building a sanctuary in within our mundane activities means to be able to stop, even before a meal, to stop and contemplate, why am I eating? Well, the first thing that will happen is that hopefully we'll make better choices in what we're going to eat, but that's on a practical, basic level. But to have the mindfulness that that eating is what feeds us, is what gives us energy, and from a, a Jewish mystical point of view, there are sparks of divine energy that find themselves into the food. And when we are able to have that intent, and you know there is a ritual uh, that before we eat, we say a blessing. It's, uh, it's a blessing that... I pick up my bottle of water instead of just gulping. I've got to stop for a second and say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has created everything with a speech. So what that says is, number one, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the water that I have and everything that went into it. 
Number two, if God created it, it means that there is a purpose that it's here to serve. And how is my relationship with the water now going to unleash the purpose for which the water was created? And how do I fit in within that context? The spiritualization of what appears to be simply a building is uh, something that you've helped all of us uh, learn about this morning. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Menachem Bloom, uh, founder and executive director of the Ottawa Torah Center. I want to thank him for helping us understand this Torah portion and so much more about the spiritual life of uh, the Jewish people. You can hear a podcast of our morning conversation on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day.